If you have your Bibles with you, uh, we're going to be continuing in our study of 1 John, so go ahead and turn to the book of 1 John, right before the book of 2 John, by the way, in case you're having trouble finding it. Um, We're going to be continuing in our study of 1 John, but uh, again, we're going to be kind of uh, here and there throughout the scriptures because it's not like you can just stay with one passage, right? As you can probably tell from the title of this sermon, the subject that we will be covering in our time together today in the Word of God is love. That is our topic today. Love, according to Paul, is the greatest of all the Christian virtues. He puts it this way, as we just heard in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak with the tongues of of angels, of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And then he concludes the chapter by noting that faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is the greatest Christian virtue. And the essence of what Paul is saying here is that even if you could say all of the most impressive and highly esteemed things about him, if you couldn't say that he was doing what he did out of love, it was all for naught. It was all meaningless if I, if I do, if I know, if I have everything right and yet don't have love, it's all worthless. A group of researchers wanted to know what children thought love was all about. And so they asked this sample group of kids what they thought about love. And uh, as you might expect, their answers were uh, both beautiful and, and hilarious, maybe beautiful because they're, they're kind of funny. Uh, one six-year-old girl said, love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your French fries without making them give you any of theirs. Another girl who was four years old says, love is when your puppy licks your face even after you've left him alone all day. A seven-year-old girl said, when you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. (laughs) Somebody's been watching too much TV. And then there's this article that I found from the Wall Street Journal on the neuroscience of love, which says neuroscience tells us that love is a condition involving neurons, neurotransmitters, hormones, receptors, and circuits in your brain. Man, how unromantic is that? I, I personally prefer what the kids have to say, but it's, it's always interesting, isn't it, to get a kid's perspective on life, uh, to hear what they think about various things in life and in the world, and yet, while we enjoy the opportunity to maybe just for a second get a glimpse of the world through the eyes of a child, we also have to keep in mind that it's more important to get God's ideas on things, especially when it comes to something as important and as beautiful as love. You know, the Bible tells us a whole lot about love, and there are passages like 1 Corinthians 13, which really hone in on the idea of biblical love and give us a deeper understanding of what love is and what all it involves. 
But I would actually argue that while most people, you know, you, you hear that, that um, chapter in weddings a lot because, you know, weddings, love, you know, there's a lot of love in there. Uh, I would actually argue that the book of First John may reveal more about biblical love than any other single book in all of Scripture. Now, John, up to this point, has already addressed the subject of love pretty thoroughly in chapter 2. Verses 7 to 11, he discussed brotherly love as a type of evidence that one is indeed walking in the light. He said, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother, meaning his fellow Christian, abides in the light. Then in chapter 3, verses 11 to 24, he presented love as an evidence that one is indeed a child of God. He said, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. So we reassure our hearts before God that we are his children when we love. So love is certainly a prominent theme, a central theme in the book of 1 John. And as we saw in the previous two lessons, the assurance of salvation can be gained with basically three evidences. Everything that we've studied up to this point in this book leads us to to three types of evidence. Number one, that we believe correctly. Number two, that we love correctly. And number three, that we obey eagerly. And truthfully, it seems to me that loving correctly is actually evidence of the other two things. Loving correctly is evidence of eager obedience and believing correctly. If we we love correctly, it has to flow from a heart that both believes correctly and is eager to obey, it seems to me, because Jesus did, after all, command us as his disciples, as his followers, to love one another So love is the greatest of Christian virtues, and yet we have to be sure to remember that Christian love is very, very different from the world's definition of love. Worldly love, as the world understands love, it's too often characterized by things like selfishness and sexuality. Christian love, on the other hand, is agape love. It's selfless, self-sacrificial love that acts for the benefit of others. Selfless, self-sacrificial love that acts for the benefit of others. And there's actually an Italian phrase which captures this essence, the the essence of this this idea wonderfully. And I'm going to just completely trash this because I don't speak a lick of Italian. I just found this online. There's this statement, Ti voglio bene. And uh, yeah, if you speak Italian, I'm sorry. I know I just trashed it. But literally translated, well, well, it gets translated as I love you. But literally translated, what it means is I wish for what is best for you or what is good for you. And that's what biblical love is. It seeks what is good. It seeks what is best for the object of that love. And what is best for us? to become more and more like Jesus, to love Jesus more, to hate our sin more. That's the end toward toward which biblical love must always aim. Before we get started, you know what I really appreciate about uh, this upcoming passage on love is its placement. 
I appreciate the fact that it falls on the heels of one of the greatest passages in all of Scripture on discernment. That's what we talked about last week, testing the spirits. Because truthfully, there are a lot of discernment ministries out there, and there are a lot of people who claim to be discerning, but there is a very, very strong temptation when exercising discernment to forget the command to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to remember that truth and love go hand in hand, and they cannot be separated. If we sacrifice love at the altar of truth, in other words, if we have truth without love, it's worthless, according to what Paul told us. But if we sacrifice truth at the altar of love, it's powerless. Let me say that again. If we sacrifice love at the altar of truth, it's worthless. If we sacrifice truth at the altar of love, it's powerless. Love without truth is powerless. Truth without love is worthless. They have to go hand in hand. So having instructed us to test the spirits against the teachings of Scripture, in the previous passage, John now continues by changing direction somewhat. So he continues with 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now we have to remember that Jesus taught that the two greatest commandments were centered on love. They involved love in their very essence. He taught that the greatest commandment of all was that we love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, all of our souls, all of our minds, all of our strength. And he taught that the second one, the second greatest commandment, was like it, that we love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And when he was asked to clarify who a neighbor is, like how do you define a neighbor, Jesus, he told the parable of the Good Samaritan, which essentially taught that everyone, anyone that you come into contact with, including your own worst enemy, by his definition of neighbor, by God's definition of neighbor, is our neighbor. And so when John instructs us to love one another, however, he is referring to the body of believers. He's referring to the body of believers, the church, those whom Christ died to ransom. And as we seek to understand the importance of this today, maybe we should start with the amount of repetition that we see here. As I've told you guys so many times, repetition is important. It's like underlining. It's like shouting. The word love is found three times here, just in verse 7. And between verse 7 and chapter 5, verse 3, it appears more than 30 times. More than 30 times. So so do do you think this, this might be just a little bit important? It's really, really important. In fact, maybe to say that it's extremely important is something of an understatement. It's really, really important. And you may realize that one of my favorite one of my favorite questions to ask when I'm studying the Bible is why, you know, like, like an annoying three-year-old, you know, uh, you know, who, who is constantly asking why, and finally you're like, because I said so, and, and let it just lie at that, you know, that's got to be the final answer, uh, but yeah, that's, that's the question that I'm always asking when I come to Scripture, why, why this, why that, why, 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 and John was apparently anticipating 
annoying people like me asking that question because he immediately jumps to giving us two reasons that we must love one another. First, he says, because love is from God. Love is from God. That's the first reason that we must love. Truly selfless, truly self-sacrificial love is always, always, always rooted in God. Selfless love for the benefit of others. That is love with no, nothing else in mind, no, no ulterior self-benefiting motives. Love that may cost us something. Love that may cost us everything. That is not a natural thing. By nature, we are all, all of humanity is self-centered and always looking out for our own best interests, always looking out for you know, whatever benefits us the most, always you know, looking out for number one, first and foremost. But, but true selfless, self-sacrificial love for the benefit of others is a piece of evidence that an individual has been born of God, is what John tells us. That is, they've been born again, born, born of God, if they love the way that God is asks us to love. So John tells us here in verse 8 that God is love. God is love. That is, love is an essential aspect of who he is. It's not just that God loves, it's that God is love. And it's not that love is God, it's that God is love in his very essence. It's part of his nature. Love is part of his nature, and so it's part of his nature to act on that love. Without God, there would be no such thing as love. Love wouldn't make any sense at all. It would be completely pointless. It would be completely meaningless if there was no God in the universe. Evolutionists would have us believe that survival of the fittest is the name of the game, but that worldview is incompatible, completely incompatible with biblical love because survival of the fittest means looking out for your own best interests, looking out to, for, for you know, the, uh, a way to preserve yourself at all costs. But biblical love, the love that God has, means denying oneself at great cost. Love is a real thing because God is real and God is love. As John Piper says, he says, quote, quote, love belongs to God's nature. It's woven into what he is. It's part of what it means to be God, end quote. And so the point that John is making here is that the person who has been born of God will love the people of God. Because God loves the people of God. Remember that John told us at the end of chapter 3 that that Jesus dwells within his people. One of the greatest truths in all of Scripture. Jesus dwells within his people. He abides within us. In the incarnation, he partook of the human nature, in order that we, his people, could partake of the divine nature. That's 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. And part of this divine nature that we, as his children, are able to partake of is love. Biblical, godly love. If you abide in Christ and he abides in you, then love is actually an indispensable part of who you are 
in the new birth because it's an indispensable part of who he is. It's part of being born of God. See, when you're born, you, you, you get, by default, you get your father's nature. That's why Jesus had no sin nature because his father didn't have a sin nature. And so when we're born of God, we, we get that nature. We get a new nature. When God regenerates a person, he gives them a new nature. The old nature is dead and incessantly inclined towards sin and away from love. Conversely, the new nature is alive and inclined away from sin and toward love. Let me say that again. The old nature is dead, incessantly inclined toward sin, away from love. The new nature is alive and inclined away from sin and toward love. And this godly love is a part of us that God is constantly seeking to grow in us, constantly seeking to perfect in us. It's a necessary part of our sanctification, and it's also a central aspect of our new nature. So part of the divine nature that we're able to partake of through faith in Christ is agape love, the same type of love with which God loved us. So love is something that flows naturally from God, and so love is also something that flows naturally from the true Christian because it's part of the new nature. And it's an essential aspect of the new nature because it's an essential aspect of God's nature. So why must we love? The the first reason is because love is from God and God is love. The second reason that he gives us here in verse 7 is actually very closely related to the first and is stated very clearly here. Verse 7, where John says, Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. To be born of God is to be born again, to be regenerated. It means you've experienced the new birth and you have a new nature. And so for a person to not love God's people is to give evidence that they don't know God. They have not been born of God. You see, it's not simply enough to just know about God. Anybody can claim that they know about God. There are atheist uh, professors in theological seminaries who know a lot of things about God. But the question is, do they actually know God? The child of God is far more intimate with their heavenly father than just knowing about God. We don't just know about him, we know him. And I think we all probably know that to know somebody in biblical language means to have a deep intimacy with them. A deep intimacy. And so John is saying that the person who does not love God's people does not know God. It's unfathomable unfathomable to think that God would give an individual a new nature which is intended to reflect his own nature and that he would dwell within them and yet not compel that person to love those who also belong to God. And so John makes it really clear for us, the person who does not love God's people does not know God. What should that mean to those who say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church, which is kind of a very common sentiment these days. There are books 
written about that, about how people love Jesus, but they hate the church. So what are the implications to a person like that? Well, first of all, I would say I, I pray that they would come around. I, I pray that the Lord would, would work in their hearts and change their hearts and change their minds. It means you might want to examine yourself. If you hate the church, you might want to examine yourself as Paul instructs us and see if you are truly in Christ based on the criteria set forth in Scripture. It means that you had better look at yourself thoroughly and make your election sure, as Peter says, because if you hate the church, I mean, if you really hate the church and there is no changing your mind, if you don't love the people that God calls his children, John is telling you very forthrightly here that you are giving a strong, strong, strong piece of evidence that you don't even know God. So what does this say for the person who steadfastly refuses to gather with fellow Christians or just has no interest in doing so? And I'm not talking about people who can't come to church because they're, they're crippled or they're, you know, they're, they're bedridden or for whatever reason. We all understand that there are reasons that people can't come sometimes. But what does this say for those who could come to church but they hate the church so much that they, that they won't? I would ask such a person this question. How are you supposed to act in a selfless, self-sacrificial manner toward those with whom you spend no time? How are you going to obey not only this one another command, but any of the one another commands, which all refer to the way life is supposed to operate in the church among God's people? How are you going to obey this command that we love one another if you refuse to partake of fellowship with God's people? You can't. You can't. And so let's look at everything that this book has taught us. Can such a person believe correctly? I suppose to to an extent perhaps, but again, I would think that if you believe correctly, the automatic response, the natural response, would be to, to act in eager obedience. If you know who Jesus is, you know that you need to be obedient to him, which would mean making sure that you have regular opportunities to put this commandment into practice by gathering with the saints. So we are to love the people whom Jesus died to ransom, number one, because God is love. And number two, because by loving the church, by loving fellow Christians, we bear evidence to the fact that we are born of God and that we know God. This is a logically cohesive argument. It's a logically sound argument that John is using here. Let's just break it down premise by premise before we continue. First of all, the first premise is God is love. Secondly, all of God's children have been regenerated by God or born of God, and they know God. Third, with that new birth came a new nature, God's nature. And fourth, all of God's children will reflect God's nature, although to varying degrees. That's part of growing in Christ, is reflecting his nature, reflecting this divine nature that we're able to partake of through him more and more. That's what sanctification is all about. And so John continues, 
the next couple verses uh, by turning the discussion to the ultimate model of perfect godly love. So he writes in verses 9 and 10, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The love of God is an amazing, amazing, unfathomable thing. It is truly awe-inspiring. Not only is God love in his very essence, but he also loves and acts on that love. And so John is telling us that in the incarnation, when Christ stepped down from heaven, humbling himself by taking on flesh, God's love for us was manifest. That is, it was revealed. It was made evident to us. You can imagine a conversation that might ensue between a child and his grandfather on Christmas Day. The grandfather buys his grandson his first guitar and he gets to experience the joy of watching his grandson just strum wildly and aimlessly on it, unable to to make any sound that resembles uh, rhythm or melody or or anything. Uh, But eventually the child starts to realize that All he's really doing is making a bunch of noise more than anything else. And so he says to his grandfather, am I I doing this right? And his grandfather says to him, you want to know what it really means to play guitar? And so he puts on Eric Clapton. And I just Googled, you know, who's the greatest guitarist in the world? And Eric Clapton's the first thing that came up. I decided to just go with whatever Google gave me first. But indeed, if you want to know what it really means to play guitar, there are few who would compare to somebody like Eric Clapton. If you want to know what it means to play guitar, what do you do? You you look to a great example. And if you want to know what it really means to love in its fullest and in its truest sense, you look to the most perfect example the love of God, as it was demonstrated in sending his son on a rescue mission into the world to die, to ransom us. And that's, that's what we celebrate at Christmas. We're not that far away from Christmas. That's what Christmas is. It's a celebration of the supreme demonstration of divine, godly, agape love. A love that doesn't just say and doesn't just feel, but a love that acts. And why would God do such a thing? Why would he send his son on this rescue mission into the world? He didn't do it because there was some mission that he couldn't accomplish without us. He didn't need us. He is entirely and eternally self-sufficient. He's sufficient on his own. He does not need us. He also didn't do it because he was lonely. That's probably the most common reason that people think that he made humanity, because God was lonely. No, he didn't do it because he was lonely. The Trinity was in eternal fellowship with one another. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed in eternal fellowship with one another, and they loved each other perfectly. God didn't need us to keep him company. No, God was not lonely. God was loving. 
He was loving, and so he acted on that love by sending his only son, Jesus, into the world to seek and save the lost in order that his people may, by faith, live through him. And we can't understand what it even means to live through him without having an understanding and having an acceptance of the fact that we were spiritually dead in our sins apart from him. Ephesians chapter 2 starts out by telling us that we were all children of wrath. Every one of us is born as a child of wrath. Every one of us is born spiritually dead as a consequence of Adam's sin. Every one of us. And what hope, what hope does a dead man have of living? Apart from God, none. No hope, no hope to speak of. And likewise, we had no hope of receiving or or experiencing spiritual life on our own. But Jesus came to die in our place, to bear the wrath against sin that every one of us deserved in order that through him we may have spiritual life in him, in order that we may walk in the light with him, in order that we may become his children and be able to partake of fellowship both with him and with his people, in order that we may abide in him and cling to him And grow in his likeness in order that we may be confident before him, knowing that even though sin has left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. In order that sin would not have victory over us, but that through him we would have victory over death and sin. And in order that we could have eternal life in his presence. But note what we see here in verse 10. We see that God in his great love is the one who took the initiative. Prior to coming to faith in Christ, we were lost. We were dead. We were lost in spiritual darkness. We were absolutely without hope. We were not seeking God. We did not love God. In fact, whether we realize it or not, we hated God. As Paul says in Romans 5.10, we were enemies of God, every single last one of us. That's the condition we were born into. God did not send his only son, Jesus, into a world that was neutral toward him. Nobody is neutral toward him. God didn't send his only son into a world that was seeking him. No, Romans chapter 3, nobody seeks God. No, God sent Jesus into enemy territory, deep into enemy territory, and it was his own initiative. It was his own sovereign prerogative to do so. It was his love that drove him to do so. And further, God didn't send his son to live in this world, but to die as a propitiation for his people, as John calls it here, a propitiation. And there, there's that word again. That's a, that's a tough word because I, I bet that nobody in here has ever used that in a non-biblical context in a conversation. We, it's just a word that we don't really use. It's a rare word. So maybe you don't recall exactly what it means for Christ to be our propitiation. So I'll give you the answer real quick in, a, in just a nutshell. The word propitiation 
this, this Greek word is the same word that was used in the Greek Old Testament when they translated the, the Old Testament into Greek for Greek people. Uh, it was the same word used in the Greek Old Testament for the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And so in a nutshell, the word propitiate means to turn away the wrath of God or to shelter one from the wrath of God by means of a blood offering. And that is what Jesus came to accomplish on behalf of those who would put saving faith in him alone. It was truly self-sacrificial, selfless, undeserved, unmerited action. It was truly the greatest example of love that there has ever, ever, ever been. John continues, uh, verses 11 and 12. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So John wants us to know that just like love was God's motivation for taking action to save us. Just like that was his motivation for sending his son. So too, the same kind of love must be both our, our aim, what, what, we're, what we're trying to, uh, how we're trying to live, and it must be our motivation for how we feel and how we act toward our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Because God so graciously and mercifully demonstrated his love for us, we should follow that example. That's basically what John is saying here. We won't love as perfectly as he did, of course, because we're not him. It, it, it's, it's not our full essence. We're, you couldn't say, you know, Toby is love. Uh, you know, you could say that uh, it's, it's an aspect that I'm trying to grow in, but it's not by my birth nature an essential part of who I am. It is part of the divine nature, and that is something that sanctification grows us in. But I know that we won't, and I won't, love as God loves. But that shouldn't serve as an excuse for us not striving to love as he loves Christ is the perfect example of what love is. He's the perfect example of how love is supposed to function. And we are to be imitators of him. We're to be imitators of him. That means loving one another the same way, or at least striving to love each other the same way that he loves us. Which means forgiving one another the same way that he has forgiven us. It means showing mercy and compassion to one another, the same way that he's shown mercy and compassion to us. It means being patient with one another as he has been patient with us. And if you don't think that he's been patient with us, (laughs) try again, try again. Uh, in, In our day and age, Christians are often, if we're being honest, Christians are often not known for their love toward one another. 
And sometimes that accusation is just kind of, it's tossed out there a little bit flippantly, uh, maybe because we don't love the way that the world loves. Uh, People often import the worldly definition of love, and they don't see that in the church, and so they say, oh, you don't love me. For example, when, when we take a stand against sin, well, love doesn't celebrate sin. So in a church setting, if we're loving one another, we, we, don't, we don't celebrate sin. So, so somebody might throw the accusation, oh, you're not being loving, because they've, they've taken a worldly definition and they're using that in applying it to us. So, yeah, because when the world says love, all too often they mean uh, you don't validate me or you don't accept everything that I do or approve of everything that I do. But sometimes that criticism, sometimes the criticism that we we don't love well enough is justified, unfortunately. But Jesus did say that love for one another is how people would know, how people would know that we are his, that we're his disciples, that we belong to him. And the beautiful reality in all of this is that if you have been born of God, if he has replaced your heart of stone with a heart of living flesh and made you a new creation in Christ Jesus, then it is within your new redeemed nature to love. It is there. It is there. Nobody who has been redeemed by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, will ever have a fallen nature again. It is dead We will still sin, but it'll be by choice rather than by nature. So really, there's no excuse. There there, there are no excuses left for refusing to love or for refusing to forgive or for refusing to show mercy and compassion or for refusing to be patient with one another. Just like there's no excuse for unrepentantly remaining in self-centered, self-gratifying, self-serving lifestyles. John's point here is that because God has loved us with this perfect self-sacrificial love, we too should strive to love one another with the same kind of love. It should flow out of the new nature. It should flow freely from the heart that is overwhelmed with gratitude for God's love for us. And we're also coming up on Thanksgiving. Uh, I don't know about you, but every year, that, that's, that's what I am most thankful for. And I'm reminded of the fact that, man, I, I never deserved grace. And I am thankful that God would give me grace anyway. Because if anybody didn't deserve it, I don't know about you guys, maybe you guys feel the same way, but if anybody, any of you guys uh, feel like if anybody didn't deserve it, uh, you think, man, it's, it's me. I, I always think, you know, Whatever, every Christian should think to themselves, you know, I'm, I'm the worst sinner I know. I'm the worst sinner I know. So love should flow freely from a heart that is overwhelmed by a sense of gratitude for God's love for us, for his grace. The truth of the matter is that this is who we are. This is who we are in Christ Jesus. And when we love one another... As God has loved us, we're experiencing 
One of the greatest freedoms. Freedom from self-centeredness. That's what Christ has freed us from. That's one of the things that Christ has freed us from. Self-centeredness. When we love one another, we're experiencing the Christian life in the way that God designed it. The way that he intended it to be. When we love one another, we're living our lives in Christ the way that God meant for the Christian life to be experienced. And then John throws in this weird line here that might seem like it doesn't fit. He says, nobody has ever seen God. You might be wondering, why would he put that in there? It doesn't quite seem to fit. So what does he mean by that? Well, the, the word that John uses here as, uh, that gets translated as seen is actually the same word that we get the word theater from. Uh, it's more than just seeing it. It means to cl- see it closely enough that we may uh, observe it, that we may know it, that we may even scrutinize it. It means to view attentively. And so what John means is that nobody has ever seen God close up and personal unveiled. I mean, of course, John had personally seen Christ, uh, but his divine nature, but Christ's divine nature, the full essence of his glory and his majesty was veiled in a sense, in order that John and the apostles may behold him. Because if his full glory had been on display, they would have died. If they had seen him in all of his glorious splendor and all of his majesty, they would have been vaporized on the spot. That's why God told Moses, man shall not see me and live. Exodus chapter 33, 20. But John's logic here, his argument here, is that while it's true that nobody has ever seen God in his full glory and lived, he's saying that God can be recognized. God can be seen through the lives of his children when they demonstrate godly love toward one another. As John Stott, who was a great preacher in his time, as he noted once, quote, the unseen God who was once revealed in his son is now revealed in his people when they love one another, end quote. And so we should make note of the fact that John says something that that gets very easily misconstrued here. He says that if we love one another, God abides in us. It sounds conditional. It sounds almost like an if-then proposition, except it's missing the then. It's not an if-then proposition. Rather, we should understand that John is saying that if we love one another, it's because God is abiding in us. That is, it is evidence that God has taken up residence inside of the person who selflessly loves and acts as God selflessly loves and acts. So how important is it that we love one another? How important is that? It's huge, and I don't think it's possible to miss the fact that it's supposed to be a central aspect, not only of our new nature in Christ, but in living out and and growing up and maturing in the Christian walk. That's That's what it means for God's love to be perfected in us. It means that we are growing in it. It means that we are becoming more and more mature, and so the love 
of God in us is becoming more and more mature. It's becoming perfected. It's strengthened. It becomes more steadfast. And it becomes more and more and more evident in us. When we love as God loves, it's proof that God is abiding in us. And if God is abiding in us, he will perfect, he will grow. He will strengthen and mature the love that we have for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to bear fruit in my life. And I pray that that you do too, because that's what we're created for. That's what pleases and honors God. And if our lives will bear fruit, the root of our lives must be found in the fact that God loves us. And that he loved us first while we were still his enemies. And that he loves us so much that he abides within us. And because he abides in us, we can love others. We can. We can love others the way that he loves us. We can strive and strive and we can actually do it. And if we ever struggle to love others, you think there might ever be times when we'll struggle to love one another? There will certainly be others who are difficult to love and there will be times when our attitude isn't exactly loving. And when that happens, when we have that struggle to love others, we have to remember, we have to go back to the cross and remember how unworthy we are of God's love. The perfect love that abides in us and will not ever, ever let us go. In my opinion, The greatest mystery in the universe is found in the fact that the holy, just, sovereign, righteous God Almighty would love somebody like me. It's amazing that he would not only love, but adopt a group of people who are rebels, like we all were, like we all still can be sometimes. And while we may not completely understand this mystery of why God would do this, we have to understand this much, that we are to be imitators of God in this aspect. We're to practice it. We're to learn it and love as we have been loved. To abide in Christ is to abide in the one true God who loves us and who is in his essence, in the very fabric of his being, love. To have him abiding in us is for us to be plugged in to the only source of truly selfless and self-sacrificial love. The God whom no eye has fully seen is revealed through the love that his people have for one another and for others in general. And if we believe correctly that Jesus is Lord, if we believe who he is in the full essence of who he is, we should be eager to obey and thus we will behave correctly as well. And part of behaving correctly will always involve denying ourselves. Denying ourselves for the sake of the cross and denying ourselves for the benefit, the self-sacrificial, selfless benefit of others. So let us as God's people, 
believe correctly, obey eagerly, and love as fully and as freely and as generously as God has loved us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is inerrant, inspired, and authoritative over every aspect of our lives. And we thank you for sending your Son to redeem us, a group of rebels who never would have sought you, never would have loved you. But you showed us your love by sending your Son to bear the wrath against sin that we rightfully deserved. And so, Lord, this morning as we close, we pray, Lord, that you would not just make us people of the truth, that we would be people of the truth because you are truth, but that we would be people who are of the truth and who love. Help us, Lord, to keep those two things hand in hand, knowing that without both of them together, there's nothing left. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to love as you have loved. Because that honors you, that pleases you, it glorifies you. And it demonstrates to others who you are and how you love us. So teach us, Lord, for your glory to act in a way toward one another that is selfless and self-sacrificial. Deliver us, Lord, from any selfish inclination that may serve as a stumbling block, that may trip us up in our walk with you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this time. We pray that this will change us and teach us to be imitators of you. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.